Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. probably recognize this passage. It's one of the ones that is most often referenced from Matthew. It is known belovedly and traditionally as the Great Commission. And today, though, we're not going to look at it so much as the commission, but as an identity of who we are called to be, more of a mental exercise. And the reason we're going to do that is because as we start a new worship series that will carry us through to the start of Advent, which is very close, we're going to have an opportunity to ask collectively in worship and answer some of the same questions that have been floating around in our church council. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does discipleship look like? And so as we have been pondering that, I dug deep back into my intellectual well from my bachelor degree in religious studies, and I went back to a course on the theory of religion, and in that course, I was able to read this book, The Study of Religion in in an Age of Global Dialogue by Leonard Swindler and Paul Moses. And both of them are professors of religion, one from Temple University and the other from Rosemont College. And they began a dialogue about how do you define religion? Forget discipleship, how do you define religion? If you're a disciple of a religion, how do we know what a religion really is? And for a long time in the United States, we were were focusing on a very narrow definition of religion because we were mostly exposed to the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and then Islam. And all of those are monotheistic. All of those have a lot of shared characteristics, which enabled us to create and functionally have a definition of religion that was really focused on those three religions. But the more that we do live in a global age where we are connected across vast geographical realms across oceans and with other continents, and we are engaging with other people and able to transport ourselves across the world, what we find is that religion is even harder to pin down than we would have thought. For now, we routinely come into contact with religions that have no deity. And that creates a problem for people in a religion that are totally dependent upon their deity. So how do you define it? Well. Leonard and Paul first start by offering what seems to be a very simple and concise definition by William C. Tremel, who himself is a religion professor, and he wrote a book called Religion. What is it? And here is what he said. Religion is a complex form of human behavior whereby a person or community of persons is prepared intellectually and emotionally to deal with those aspects of human existence that are horrendous and non-manipulatable. So if you're unable to change these horrible things, religion almost feels like a coping mechanism. It's It's a way to prepare you in thought and in heart that you can deal with whatever is happening. 
Some of us have deities that assist us in this, in religious studies. Some of us have it through different means of cultivating inner peace or achieving enlightenment. There are all different ways to do that, but as beautiful in certain ways as that definition is, it wasn't exactly satisfying to Leonard and Paul. So they developed a way of articulating what a religion is using the four C's. And the four C's are creed, code, cult, and community. And over the next few Sundays, we will be exploring those, but as they do, we will begin with creed. Now, most Christians have no problem with this, especially people like you and I who are taking part in traditional worship services. We know that there are creeds. We are a part of the creedal family of Christianity, and so we have received creeds that have come not only from the early Christian church down through Roman Catholicism, they have come down through the Anglican incarnation of the Church of England, and finally they came to Methodism, as we have them, and I'm sure there are more than just one or two of you in here that could actually recite the Apostles' Creed by memory. And there's another creed that often we say, which is the Nicene Creed. And that creed, as you know, is longer, and aren't you glad that we don't require you to memorize that one? If you've ever had to stand and recite it together, which is one of the beautiful aspects of a creed, and one of the things that I think is often missing and not even understood what we're missing in other forms of worship, such as contemporary or modern, is that there is truly something beautiful about a group of Christians standing before God with one another and raising their voices in unison to speak the holy truths of our faith. That's a beautiful thing. And whether you're reading it from a screen or a hymnal or you are good enough to have it memorized and know it by heart, it is truly beautiful to hear, to see, to participate in. And so for us, the creeds have an even deeper meaning. But oftentimes, when you teach confirmation, we start with the creeds because the creeds are about the cognitive aspects. They are about the way in which we intellectualize what it is that we believe. And if you've ever tried to figure out what it is Christianity is about, a great place to start are the creeds. Now, the Apostles' Creed came first, even though that's rather difficult to see in the hymnal. If you've ever had one of those most unfortunate experiences where you're very bored with the sermon and you open up the hymnal and you flip through it trying to find something to pay attention to, then oftentimes, if you make it all the way back to the 800s, you will find not only both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but you'll find other affirmations of faith that have come to us through the connectivity with other forms of Christianity, but also through our connectionalism with other Methodist expressions across the globe and through the ages. And so you will find those there. Now, when I teach a, a confirmation class, I will often ask them, which one do you think came first, the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed? And it looks from the layout in our hymnal that it would be the Nicene Creed. It comes first. Why would you put the last first and the first last? However, the reason the Nicene Creed is first is because it is the most full expression of what we currently believe. The Apostles' Creed is not incorrect. The Apostles' Creed is not deficient, as it might seem. But instead, the Apostles' Creed came from a time where people were trying to be very succinct and able to articulate rather quickly what it is that they believe. And if you want to do that, you don't write an epistle this long. You try to keep it manageable. And so the Apostles' Creed was an early expression of the community of Christ speaking together its beliefs. 
And it was a beautiful thing. But as time went on, what they discovered is that there were kind of holes or blank spaces in the Apostles' Creed where people were asking questions and, and God forbid, misinterpreting some things. And so the Nicene Creed attempted to correct some of that, where it stipulates that Jesus is begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, not some image of God, but God. And so you can see, if you compare the two, that in the Nicene Creed, we're trying to kind of fix or further define what it is that we believe. And for a lot of Christians, it's like, that's all fine and dandy, but how does that work out anywhere else? And Jesus is letting us know. When you hear the words of the Great Commission from Matthew, Jesus is telling us to do things, but you can't do them if you don't know what they are and what to do. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them and remember. All of those, even though they seem to have aspects of physical activity and engaging with other people, also require us to engage in the use of that rational mind. Now, the philosopher, mathematician, and incredible mind of Rene Descartes once said, I think, therefore I am. That what we think and the ability to recognize our own existence is, in fact, confirmation that we exist. It is a side of our personhood that is truly important for humanity, that each of us is able to think about not just ourselves, but about other things, and therefore it expresses our personhood. And truly, that is one of the gifts of religion, is that it helps us to delve even deeper into what we think about ourselves, about our God, in the case of the Abrahamic faith, about what salvation and transcendence look like according to our religious beliefs, those outlined in our creeds and well beyond. So what we think is actually the first step in what we do and why we do it. Now, the other thing that often happens in confirmation is that we start talking about what, it is, does it, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, most of them have this kind of figured out when you get to confirmation, otherwise they wouldn't be in confirmation. But we start with the beginnings. What is it that Jesus tells us that we need to know? And Jesus gracefully and graciously narrows that down to two things, love God and love others. And there was once a relatively snarky and therefore very close to my heart confirmand at my last church who was around the age of 12. That church did confirmation for sixth graders. And oh, the sixth grade is truly a unique place. Some of them were still very much in the culture and the intellectualism of elementary school. Some of them had kind of emerged into that blissful place that we call middle school, where you're not quite a child, but not quite an adult, and sometimes your body is doing all kinds of weird things, and it's a wonderful discombobulation that you experience in that time. And a great many of the confirmands were there, and I will freely admit to you that there were one or two over the years who had certainly already transcended the trajectory of their peers, and not only were they past high school, but I'm pretty sure they were ready to move out and establish their own lives. And so when you're having discussions with sixth graders, it runs the gamut of possibilities. 
And this particular youth who, again, very snarky, very close to my heart, said, Jesus has made it so hard for us. Couldn't have asked us to do anything more difficult. Which part? The loving other people. Now, if I asked you to think about somebody, to try to cognitively recall someone that you don't love, we don't want to use the word hate, but someone that you don't love, someone that is difficult for you, someone that has maybe a relationship that is torn asunder or somebody who has hurt you, uh, someone who, you know, every now and then you just meet somebody and it just doesn't work. I'll give you 15 minutes to try to think of a person like that. You don't need 15 minutes? Some of you didn't need 15 seconds, right? Because we think of those people. They come to us. They come to us because it is a sign that the human heart is not naturally the heart of Jesus Christ. That our hearts might very well be made of stone. And that it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Father that we are able to have our hearts transformed so that it even becomes possible to love other people. And so when we think about that, we realize that, yes, we could probably name a few people that we would like an asterisk that would forgive us for not loving as we love ourselves. But then think about the other side. Think about someone that you know unequivocally you love. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a spouse or a partner, maybe it is a family friend, maybe it is a friend, maybe it is a coworker, maybe it is a fellow student, maybe it is somebody within the church, or, or just somebody that you know, that whenever you think of them, you feel your heart warming, you feel that gratitude that comes from being blessed to know that person and the impact that they have upon your life. Think about that person and how it gives you like this weightlessness, this lightness to your being. Your spirit feels like it could soar because of the gift of that relationship. And you feel strong because of what you have with them. If only we could love everyone like that. That's the struggle for not just every human being, but for every Christian, for every disciple. Those who are choosing to actively follow Jesus. And that is why Jesus says, here are the things that you need to remember, the things that you need to intellectualize, and the things that need to be at work. Because you'll notice that in both of those exercises, thinking of someone you don't love and someone that you do, it involved not only the emotional seat of your being, your heart, but also your mind. And you might have immediately drifted into the memory zone where you can think of good times and bad times. You can think of things that were said and things that were done. You can automatically start to cognitively recall the way they look, the way they smell, the sound of their voice, the feel of their body in an embrace. These are the kinds of things that connect the heart and the mind so deeply. And knowing this, God incarnated in Jesus told us that we need to know what it is that we think. We need to have an awareness of this. And those five things that Jesus tells to us in the Great Commission are not always easy. Going is not always easy. Sometimes we're very comfortable where we are. Sometimes we have mobility issues about going somewhere. Sometimes it's just not convenient to go. And so going along, you have to think about, am I going to get up? Am I going to go? And then making disciples. 
How do you make a disciple if you don't know what discipleship means? How do you tell someone you will become a disciple? And they go, well, what is a disciple? And you go, uh, let me get back to you. We have to know what it is that we are asking them to become. We have to know what it is that we are helping them to become. We have to know what it is that we are so that we can see if we are even at the point where we can help to make disciples. And then teaching, well, baptizing, we'll go to baptizing. Baptizing is a little difficult because some people will go, well, I can't baptize. That's probably true. The vast majority of us here probably cannot baptize by church law. However, every single person has the opportunity to be baptized. It is God's gift of grace to us. It is a tangible sign. And not only that, but you have the opportunity to receive the application of water, that instant justification. You have the opportunity to experience the laying of hands and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes when those two things are combined. I have experienced what it is to be part of the application of water and the laying of hands and the invocation. But all of us, whether we are baptized or a baptizer, have the ability to witness baptism and be reminded, reminded of what it means and the opportunity that is there. Every time you witness a baptism here in the United Methodist tradition, you are encouraged to say your own piece that speaks to the testimony that we have been transformed by this gift of grace, not only when it happened to us, if it happened to us, but then that just being present and participating with our prayers in our presence has changed us. And so baptism becomes really crucial. What do you think about baptism? And then there's teaching. And immediately some of us go, whoa, that is not mine, not my gift, not my place. And I get that because in the pandemic, I think I shared with you that in the swoop of, a, of an email, I became a fourth grade teacher. I have never felt called to be a fourth grade teacher. I never had a desire to be a fourth grade teacher. And after experiencing the fact that I have none of the gifts of fourth grade teaching, I don't wanna be a fourth grade teacher. So God love fourth grade teachers because I am not one of them. And so a lot of us go, teaching is just not my comfort zone. I don't wanna do it. I have to be with a group of people that I might not wanna be with, it's difficult. And I understand that. But every single disciple is teaching whether we are aware of it or not. We are teaching with how we talk to people. We are teaching with how we treat them, the actions that we have in the world, and truly, even the way we choose to show up and be present is teaching people about Jesus Christ. And so we become teachers whether or not we like it, which means that we have to think about our lesson plan and our curriculum. We have to recognize that every day is a testimony, and whether we like it or not, whether it is our desire to explicitly teach, we are therefore implicitly teaching. And the mantle gets heavier. And just when you think you've reached your peak with go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all that I've told you, you get to the last one. Remember. Remember, says Jesus, I am with you always. Always. Remember that I am with you. Remember with your mind, remember with your heart, remember with your spirit, remember with your strength, remember in your weakness, remember through all of these things that I am with you. 
And it becomes important because there will come moments, maybe when you encounter that person that you didn't like so much, where you have to remember. And some of us need to remember that Jesus is with us and we can overcome our feelings, our inclinations. We are able to move into a place of grace and forgiveness because Jesus is with us. And some of us need to remember Jesus is with us because Jesus is like, I'm watching. I'm watching. Go on now. I will admit there have been a few times in my life where Jesus was like, I'm watching you. And I was very aware. So yes, for some of us, the motivation is different. How we think about it is different, but what is expected of us is the same. Fruitfulness for Jesus Christ. And so we get to the point where what we think is truly important. And the thing is that we don't all think alike. You know, if you've ever gone to a museum with art in it and you've looked at the art, and sometimes you're so moved by it, and other times you're like, what is this? I can remember one time Luke's father and I had gone to a museum of modern art, and I don't really know why we did this, because he was a New York Italian Catholic, and everything really needed to look like the Sistine Chapel. So here we were in a museum of modern art in New York City, and we're walking around, and you know, some things look vaguely humanoid, or uh, you might be able to make out some kind of landscape or a still life portrait, something happening there. Um, you know, kind of lots of different color, which I was all about. But then we got to this point, and over the time, I had watched him become more and more displeased with the experience. And we get to a rather large painting that was entirely painted black. And beside it was the name of the painting, and it just said, night. And Luke's father said, that's it, I'm done, we're leaving. Two things happened here. One, I looked at it and thought, I wonder if I look at this long enough if I will feel the darkness. I wonder what will happen here. I also realized that I would never again take him to anything that wasn't pure Renaissance classic art. We learn. We learn lessons. And so we come to discover that we don't all think alike. Probably not even the person that you immediately conjured with the greatest love, right? We don't all think alike. We might have places where we think in lockstep, but then every now and then they'll say or do something, and you're like, what are you thinking? And so we don't all think alike, but we try. We, we try to have unity and purpose and overarching thought. We try to do that, especially in the church. But every now and then we realize that someone is thinking differently than us, and maybe, maybe that's what we need to ponder. So this past week in the preschool chapel, I was teaching the children about David and Goliath. It's a story that I reframe as a bullying story, and we're very anti-bullying, and so we talk about it. And I know you'll be shocked to know this, I have a whole bunch of action figures that I line up on the altar rail, and we act it out. And I introduced to them on this side the Philistine army, and they're all looking very bulked up and uh, hanging out over here. And I introduced to them their super soldier, the giant Goliath, who is very massive and intimidating, towering over even the Philistine army. And then over here, looking pretty meek and mild and frankly quite deficient, would be our Israelite army, which is actually biblically accurate. They were never a really good military force, never really that great. Every now and then, they had a really good soldier, but by and large, they were kind of a mess when it came to that. And so they're lined up over here, and I have King Saul standing here, and I tell the children the story. 
there were these two groups of people, and they didn't really get along with each other. We don't really know why, but they didn't really like each other. And so what ended up happening was they didn't like each other so much that one group decided it wanted to destroy the other. And so every day the Philistines would line up in their military garb, and they would come out with their swords, and they would stand in a line, and Goliath would come out in front of him, and he would hurl insults at the Israelites. He would tell them how weak they were, how deficient they were, how they couldn't possibly do anything. They were a waste of life. And he mocked them and tore them down with words and physical intimidation. And day after day, this continued. It continued so long that some of the men who were in the army of the Israelites, their father started to wonder what was going on. And so he said to one of his youngest sons, who was too young to be in the army, I want you to go and visit your brothers, and I want you to take some snacks from home, send them a care package, find out what's going on, and bring me back news. That young man was David. And David had stayed home to help watch dad's sheep. Father was a shepherd, David was a young shepherd. And so David said, I can do that. He traveled from his hometown out to the battle site. And when he got there, he could see the weight of the words and the bullying on the army, especially his brothers. And he got there and he said, what is going on? And they said, what is going on? Every single day, this huge giant Goliath comes out and makes us feel horrible about ourselves, about our ability to do anything. And now he's issued this huge fight about how anybody that fights him will fight to the death. And if he wins, then we all lose. And David goes, that's horrible. That's not the way we should be. He can't say that. We're God's people. And the brothers went, what are you going to do about it? And David said, I will fight Goliath. Insert laugh track here. You, you're going to fight. You couldn't even be in the army. How are you going to fight? They're so amused by him wanting to fight that they take him to Saul, probably mockingly. Yeah, okay, here you go. Here's the king. Tell him what you said. Tell, tell him what you said. And the king listens to this young child, probably about the same age as that snarky yet beloved middle schooler in my confirmation class, and says, Goliath is wrong, and it is not fair, it is not just, and I will battle him. And you know Saul went, you are going to battle him. Saul wouldn't even battle him. And David said, yes, I will battle him. And Saul says, all right, fine. Here's my armor, here's my sword, and David can't walk because he's 12. And so David says, I have to take all this off. I'm just going to be me. I'm going to wear my shepherding outfit. I'm going to take my sling and my pouch, and I will go and fight Goliath. And Saul says, how are you going to do that without armor and a sword? And David says, God. I will do it with God. And they leave him to it. He goes down to the little river, the little creek there, and he prays to God and says, God, you know this is not right. You know this is not how your people should be treated. And so I will battle this giant, and only with you can I succeed. He takes five smooth stones and puts them in his pouch, and then he sets off to confront Goliath. And this day, when the armies line up and Goliath comes out ready to start hurling his, in, his insults, today, a 12-year-old walks out. 
And he laughs, this big, booming, monstrous laugh. And David says, I will fight you. You are going to fight me. Okay. And he starts to insult David as he has insulted everyone else. And David says, no, you underestimate me. I am here by the power of God, and God will overcome you. And no longer will you hurt God's people. And with one stone in his sling, the same sling that he has used to defend his father's precious beloved sheep, the same sling that he had used to run off and triumph over bears and lions, that same tried but true rudimentary weapon circles above his head and he launches that stone and it hits Goliath in the forehead and he falls down. And we very dramatically make Goliath fall down and usually a couple of Philistines topple with him and the children are all very excited that Goliath has been defeated. And I stop right there. I don't proceed with, and then David took his sword and cut off his head and was like, ta-da, we don't do that part. We save that for Sunday school. We don't do that in chapel. So we went over this and I said, but this was a story that Jesus used to hear when he was your age. This is a story that they had been telling for a very long time. And I was like, and now today, because of what Jesus has said to us and given to us, are we meant to go and hurt people just because they're hurting us? And they said, no, because they are all ahead of the class. And I said, we use our words. Do we use our words to hurt? No. We have been given words to heal, to help, to name, to call out, but not to inflict damage as we have been hurt. We have been given the love of Christ to stop the cycle of pain. And the children get this pretty rapidly. I mean, we've laid some groundwork. And so they get this. And then we pray together, and then they line up as classes, and they usually exit through these front two doors. But this day, on Wednesday, one of the young men came up to me and said, you know, I've got a Bible at home, and I've read it all. I've read it all. That's great. Yep, I've read it all, and I know that in the next chapter, Goliath becomes good. In the next chapter, Goliath becomes good. And I didn't want to correct him because I found myself saying, if only that could be true. If the person that we thought of so quickly as being the person that we don't love is the Goliath in our narrative, in the next chapter, can they become good? Is that a narrative? Because it isn't the narrative for this particular Goliath, but is it a narrative that we believe, that we think can happen? Fortunately for us, God shows us it is. Someone who wrote more books of the Bible than anyone else. Someone whose story went from hating and killing Christians simply because they believed in Jesus Christ to becoming one of the paragons of Christianity, you know him as Paul. So yes, we do know that Goliath can become good. And that makes a difference. It makes a difference when you're talking to your Goliath if you believe that maybe not you, but maybe the power and the grace of Jesus Christ and the absolute ability of God to change and transform everything could make this, yes, even this person good. It changes us. 
It changes what we say and what we do and how we interact. And so in that moment when that child said to me, I know that in the next chapter, Goliath becomes good. It was almost like God was talking to me. I know that in the next chapter, Goliath becomes good. And every single one of us has probably been a Goliath to somebody else. And don't you want to become good in the next chapter? We have to believe that it is possible. We have to remember that story, these encounters. We have to remember what it is like for every single Christian is a sinner and a saint. We are all a Goliath and a David. We are all those that know sin and have had it forgiven. So we know both sides. And it's the the gift of the rational mind that God has given to us that Methodism empowers us with in the free will that we can choose to think and do differently. And so what we believe is everything. It will inform how we talk to people. It will inform what we do, the acts that we engage in. Are they kind or are they cruel? Will we burden or will we bless? All of those things are are filtered through and fruits of our mind. And that's why Jesus tells us, remember, remember. And so it is that we come to a place in our religion here in Christianity, here in United Methodism, here in Crozet, where we have an opportunity to think and to ponder and to wonder. Do we still have that childlike faith and assurance of that brave, bold young man who stood up to the pastor who was probably three times his height and said, I know the next chapter. Because one day you will be standing before your Goliath. And do you know that the next chapter is written not by us and not by Goliath, but by God? And do you believe that God can make all things new? May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.